Okay, so tonight, well, first I'd like to check how's the sound. It sounds very loud to me. Is it too, a little bit loud? Are you able to turn it down just a smidgen? And I'll try adjusting this too. Okay, how's that? People at the back, can you still hear okay? Okay, that's good, thank you. Okay, so tonight I'd like to continue from where I left off last time. I was exploring what makes the forest refuge a refuge. And I suggested that we can make the most of this place by consciously orienting to six aspects that support us to be more fully on retreat here. And these six are safety, silence, solitude, simplicity, slowing down, and stillness. So these are conditions that not only support our meditation practice, they're also the fruits of that practice. They're what we experience when the heart and mind can rest more fully in sati and samadhi, mindfulness and stability of mind sometimes known as concentration. And when sati and samadhi are equally well developed, we have the best conditions for deep insight to occur and freedom to be known. And yet, even though the conditions here are near perfect, they don't guarantee us complete happiness. Has anybody noticed that? We can be in this place where, at least in theory, there's very little stress. We don't have many responsibilities. Our basic needs are well taken care of. And pretty much everyone here is doing their best to be kind and considerate. And yet, we're not always happy. In fact, at times we can be intensely unhappy. So I just want to check that I'm not projecting too much. So has any of you here, from the time you first arrived at the Forest Refuge, experienced 100% happiness 100% of the time? Okay, so I was wondering if I was going to be out of a job. (laughs) So It's a relief. We can... um, know from our own experience that just having the right outer conditions is not enough to guarantee happiness. Because we bring our inner conditions with us, and often those inner conditions torment us no matter where we are. And there's a story from the suttas that illustrates this quite graphically, using the simile of a wild dog with mange, Mange is a very itchy skin condition caused by mites. And this is how the Thai meditation master Ajahn Chah tells that sutta. The Buddha once saw a jackal, a wild dog, run out of the forest where he was staying. It stood still for a while, then it ran into the underbrush, and then out again. Then it ran into a tree hollow, then out again. Then it went into a cave only to come out again. One minute it stood, the next it ran, then it lay down, then it jumped up. That jackal had mange. When it stood, the mange would into into its skin and it would run. Running, it was still uncomfortable, so it would lie down. Then it would jump up again, running into the underbrush, the tree hollow, the cave, never staying still. The Buddha said, Monks, did you see that jackal this afternoon? Standing, it suffered. Running, it suffered. Sitting, it suffered. Lying down, it suffered. In the underbrush, a tree hollow or a cave, it suffered. It blamed standing for its discomfort. It blamed sitting. It blamed running and lying down. It blamed the tree, the underbrush and the cave. In fact, the problem was with none of these things. That jackal had mange. The problem was with the mange. 
So perhaps some of you can relate to, at least at times, that sense of wherever you go, there you are. And there can be a sense of relentless dissatisfaction, even in the middle of these otherwise good conditions. So we start to understand that it's not enough just to check out of our everyday lives and take ourselves off to a quiet place for a week or a month or a year. Something more is needed than just removing ourselves from our ordinary environment. So at the end of the talk last week, I read a quote from the suttas that points in this direction. The difference between inner and outer refuge, inner and outer safety. And I'd like to read that quote again, this time in a translation by Gil Fronsdal. People threatened by fear go to many refuges, to mountains, forests, parks, trees, and shrines. None of these is a secure refuge. None is a supreme refuge. Not by going to such a refuge is one released from all suffering. But when someone going for refuge to the Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha sees with right insight the four noble truths, suffering, the arising of suffering, the overcoming of suffering, and the eightfold path leading to the ending of suffering, then this is a secure refuge. This is a supreme refuge. By going to such a refuge, one is released from all suffering. So at the heart of true refuge is an understanding of the Four Noble Truths because this understanding is what leads to complete ease and peace and freedom. How does it do that? By changing our relationship to suffering. Suffering being the usual English translation of the Pali word dukkha. So as you heard in that sutta, by knowing suffering, the arising of suffering, the overcoming of suffering, the Eightfold Path leading to the end of suffering, one is released from all suffering. Now that might sound like a whole pile of suffering before we get to the end of it. So it's important to keep in mind that everything I'm talking about tonight is in the service of ever-deepening ease, happiness, peace and freedom. So the first noble truth that's usually translated as there is suffering, we might hear the word suffering and think, well, you know, there's aspects of my life that aren't going so well at the moment, but I wouldn't really say I'm suffering. So we might not immediately connect with what's being pointed to here, partly because of the problem with the translation. The Pali word dukkha, that's usually translated as suffering, has a much broader range of meanings than the English word suffering suggests. So I'd like to look at how the Buddha defines dukkha in the context of these Four Noble Truths and elsewhere in the teachings. So in the First Noble Truth, uh, translated by Tanasaru Bhikkhu, Tanasaru Bhikkhu uses the word stress for dukkha. And it says, now this, practitioners, is the Noble Truth of stress. Birth is stressful. Aging is stressful. Death is stressful. Sorrow, lamentation, pain, distress and despair are stressful. Associated with the unloved is stressful. Separation from the loved is stressful. Not getting what is wanted is stressful. In short, the five clinging aggregates are stressful. So we could probably spend the whole rest of this retreat or even the rest of our lives exploring just that one paragraph. And elsewhere in the teachings, the Buddha used the same word dukkha in relation to more subtly unpleasant aspects of experience. So in relation to it being one of the three universal characteristics that are common to everything we experience because everything is impermanent, nothing lasts, it's unreliable, it's not capable of providing lasting satisfaction. So even pleasant experiences can have this quality of dukkha because before long they pass away and we're left chasing after the next hit of pleasantness. 
So this Pali word includes a very broad range of types of suffering. And because we're born as human beings with vulnerable bodies and vulnerable hearts and vulnerable minds, we are going to experience some degree of dukkha. That's just a fact. But on top of that basic dukkha, we usually add a whole pile of extra dukkha in the form of our reactivity to it. You might have noticed even so far in this talk, any trace of resistance or impatience or frustration or boredom or restless, oh, not suffering again. Didn't we hear about that last week and the week before and the week before? So we might be able to connect to a subtle or not so subtle recoil even from the idea of exploring suffering. So we do need to keep in mind that it's about freeing ourselves from it. And it's hard to keep this in mind, partly because we do have what neuroscientists call our inbuilt negativity bias. So some of you probably know Rick Hansen's famous catchphrase that our brains are like Velcro for the unpleasant and Teflon for the pleasant. So what's experienced as unpleasant tends to stick out, to stick around. And the opposite, what's pleasant, tends to slide right off. And we might notice the Velcro nature of dukkha, how it tends to attract other unpleasant reactions to the suffering, such as avoidance or escapism, denial, anger, fear, blame, despair, shame, and so on. The list can get pretty long. And in everyday life, when our mindfulness is less stable, it's much easier to get caught in those kind of habitual reactions. But here on retreat, where we're learning to still the body, the heart, the mind, as that more stable awareness develops, we can start to see the underlying energies that feed the dukkha and create even more dukkha. And with practice, we can learn how to release those energies and to cultivate a more spacious relationship to suffering. Which, as I'm sure you all know, isn't easy. So we're fortunate that the Buddha offered us a range of different tools and techniques for overcoming this instinctive avoidance of dukkha. And generally speaking, these uh, tools can be classified according to whether they develop wisdom or whether they develop compassion. And these are the two main approaches that the Buddha suggests we bring, that we bring to dukkha. And they're sometimes spoken of in terms of the, a metaphor of the two wings of awakening. And from that metaphor of the two wings, we can see quite directly that we need both wisdom and compassion. We need both of them to be equally well-developed if we're going to fly. So I'll be going into both of those a, a little bit more detail soon, but just to begin with a couple of working definitions. What I mean by wisdom in this context is another word for insight for clear seeing, for understanding the deepest truths of our human experience. So the wisdom wing of the practice includes insight meditation, which rests on the four foundations of mindfulness that we're practicing here. And compassion in this context refers to the capacity to turn towards what's difficult, to meet our own and others' pain with kindness, care, and courage. As most of you probably know, compassion is one of the four heart qualities known as the Brahmaviharas. And in the context of the two wings to awakening, compassion is a kind of umbrella term for all of these. So the Brahmaviharas are metta or kindness, compassion itself, appreciative joy, and equanimity or balance of mind, peace of mind. And together, these four help to strengthen the mind's capacity to experience liberating insight and the resulting deep peace. 
In order to experience the deepest kind of peace, first we have to understand dukkha. We have to recognize it, get to know it, listen to it, meet it with kind curiosity, befriend it, so we can learn what it has to teach us. This is really the first task of the first noble truth. There is dukkha, and dukkha is to be understood. This is the beginning of developing a wise relationship to dukkha. So how might we do this as a natural practice? In her last Dharma talk, Caroline shared four questions in relation to the Four Noble Truths from the uh, American scholar monk Tanasaru Bhikkhu. So just as a reminder, these four are, one, is there stress? Remembering that he um, translates dukkha as stress. Is there stress? Two, what am I holding on to? Three, can I relax the grip? Four, what would help? So we might explore that even right now, practice with that first question just by asking in this moment, is there any kind of stress, distress, suffering, dukkha right now? perhaps some physical discomfort or pain, perhaps some emotional distress, perhaps some painful thought patterns, perhaps a difficult life situation, or maybe all of the above. What's it like just to recognize and acknowledge, oh, this is dukkha. Dukkha is like this. Sometimes even just being able to name this unsatisfactoriness as dukkha can help it release. Because unconsciously, most of us have a deeply held belief that anything unpleasant is wrong, bad, and shouldn't be happening. But this is a form of ignorance or delusion. It's not in alignment with the truth of how things are. So this first noble truth simply names that there is, at times, unsatisfactoriness. And just acknowledging it can bring a moment of relief. Because in that moment, we've stepped out of delusion momentarily and we're back in alignment with reality. And in the bigger picture, too, there can be relief to hear the Buddha simply naming that there is suffering. Because collectively, on a society-wide level, we try to ignore, avoid, and deny that truth. For example, we see this very clearly in relation to aging, sickness, and death. But it extends to all other unpleasant aspects of reality, too. So when we as individuals aren't able to live up to the impossible expectations that society has for us, it's easy to blame ourselves and to feel inadequate. So in this context, to hear the Buddha acknowledge that there is suffering is a radical statement, and it can help to free us from the expectation that life should be exactly the way we want it all the time. And paradoxically, it's the willingness to get close to dukkha that helps it to release. And usually this is counter to our fear that getting closer to suffering will lead to becoming overwhelmed by it and drowning in it. Yet each time we are able to turn towards dukkha, to become intimate with it, we strengthen both wisdom and compassion. And these are the resources that help us free ourselves from dukkha on deeper and deeper levels. Here's how the English Dharma teacher Christina Feldman describes this process of turning towards pain. She says, Awareness is born of intimacy. We can only fear and hate what we do not understand and what we perceive from a distance. We can only find compassion and freedom in intimacy. We can be afraid of intimacy with pain because we are afraid of helplessness. We fear that we don't have the inner balance to embrace suffering without being overwhelmed. 
Yet, each time we find the willingness to meet affliction, we discover we are not powerless. Awareness rescues us from helplessness, teaching us to be helpful through our kindness, patience, resilience, and courage. Awareness is the forerunner of understanding, and understanding is the prerequisite to bringing suffering to an end. So the understanding that Christina is pointing to can come from bringing wisdom, the lens of wisdom, to our painful experiences. And in terms of insight, this means seeing the three universal characteristics of anicca, or impermanence, dukkha, or unsatisfactoriness, and anatta, or not-self, in relation to our suffering. So the first of these three characteristics, anicca or impermanence, is both good news and bad news in relation to suffering. The good news is that because of the truth of impermanence, at some point our dukkha will disappear. It might not disappear in the time frame that we'd like it to, as quickly as we'd like, but at some stage it will definitely pass away. So if we do recognize that we're getting caught in solidifying our pain, making it permanent, imagining that it's going to be with us forever and ever, then it could be helpful to remind ourselves, this too shall pass, Anicca. This too shall pass. The bad news, though, is that because of the truth of impermanence, what's pleasant and enjoyable will also disappear. And usually we resist that kind of change. So coming back to Tanasara Bhikkhu's questions in relation to the Four Noble Truths, the second question is, what am I holding on to? And again, you might like to just briefly explore that question now. Coming back to the dukkha that you identified a few minutes ago, or perhaps a new dukkha if something else is more strongly present now. Can you get a sense of some way that you're holding on to something or resisting something? Can you open to the truth of impermanence or are you pushing it away? And if you do recognize some kind of struggle in relation to anicca, to change or impermanence, Is it possible to soften around it, to surrender to the truth that this too shall pass, and this, and this? So the second universal characteristic of all experience is that it's dukkha, that word again, and here it's most accurately translated as unsatisfactoriness. And it's an invitation to recognize that nothing in the world is capable of providing us with lasting satisfaction. And again, this is deeply counter to our usual way of relating to the world. Often there's the unconscious expectation that if I could just get this, or just have that, or just get rid of the other, then I'd be happy. So in my own practice a few years ago, I came across a kind of a slogan that really helped highlight for me the subtle and not so subtle ways that I was resisting dukkha. And that slogan is, if it's in the way, it is the way. If it's in the way, it is the way. So for me, that highlighted all the things that I thought were wrong and were stopping me from deepening my practice and help me to realize this too needs to be folded into awareness. So you might think back over your experience of practice in the last few days and to notice whether any things you definitely felt should not be happening that were getting in the way. And can you fold those in to the practice to soften into acceptance of them rather than tightening in resistance? So here on retreat, we can train in meeting these more low-level forms of dukkha with non-reactivity. 
And it's good to train with minor dukkha so that we can gradually build up our capacity to meet the more intense forms of dukkha. Because none of us is exempt from misfortune. And for sure, every one of us is experiencing aging, time sickness, and eventually dying. So it's a good idea to start training now so that when we do have to face these more intense challenges, we're in a much better place to navigate them with some degree of ease. So the third universal characteristic is the, usually is anatta, which is usually translated as not-self. And in this context, anatta points to the wisdom of not taking things personally, not identifying with them, not believing that they're completely under our control. And again, this is pretty much counter to how we usually believe ourselves and the world to be. But just check, you know, do we wake up in the mornings and tell ourselves, okay, today's a really good day to suffer. Or, yes, let me remember that excruciating thing that happened 10 years ago and really remember it over and over and over again. We don't usually make choices to do that kind of thing. And yet somehow we find them happening. Dukkha arises due to causes and conditions, and a lot of it is not under our control. And yet we tend to identify it or appropriate it, as Caroline says, make it me and mine and who I am. And when we do this, we often turn our practice into a giant self-improvement project, trying to get rid of everything that we don't like about ourselves and not seeing that all of that is rooted in self-aversion and that attempts to constantly be in control in an uncontrollable world only adds to our stress. So here we might bring in the third question of Tanisaru Bhikkhu's four questions, which is, can I relax the grip? And again, we might play with that possibility right now. Just again, touch it, touching into the dukkha you, you were exploring earlier. To notice any underlying assumption that, yes, this is me, it is mine, it is who I am. And I'm responsible for it. What might it be like to let go of trying to be in control? Can I relax the grip? The more we can reduce this tendency to identify with dukkha and take it personally, the less extra suffering we add to it. So at times we might need to remind ourselves that this is just arising due to conditions. It's not me, it's not mine, it's not who I am. And when we stop taking it all so personally, the more we can see the universality of suffering. Dukkha is not unique to me. It's not due to my individual shortcomings. It's just an aspect of being a human being. And at times it can be helpful to deliberately turn this, turn the attention to this understanding, to acknowledge that there are likely to be many other people going through what we're going through right now, probably even people in this room here this evening. So I'd like to share a simple example of this uh, using the universe, universality of suffering to our advantage. It's not a very beautiful example. In fact, it's quite gross on some level. But hopefully you might get the um, gist of it. It comes from a time when I was on retreat here at the Forest Refuge a few years ago now. And at that time I had a chronic health condition. So I was prescribed a course of three very strong antibiotics to deal with it. And I was warned that they could cause intense nausea, but usually I don't get sick that easily. So I assumed that I'd be okay. 
But from the very first day of taking them, from the minute I woke up in the morning until I went back to bed at night, I felt like I was just on the verge of vomiting. And a few times I actually did vomit. And I tried to keep meditating with all the discomfort, but after a few days, pretty much all that was in my mind was, when am I going to throw up again and where's the nearest bathroom? And it felt like my whole world just shrank into me and my stomach. And after a while, that intense self-centeredness started to feel pretty claustrophobic. So I had an inspiration to try to think about all the other people in the world who in that moment might also be experiencing nausea. So I started thinking of all the pregnant women who were going through morning sickness. And I thought about all the sailors out at sea in storms who were dealing with seasickness. And I thought of all the people undergoing chemotherapy, unable to eat. And I even thought of all the people with hangovers who were telling themselves, never again. And I imagine millions of people all over the world in that moment retching together in unison. And surprisingly, that image actually helped to lighten up the mood. And I felt this wave of compassion, of compassion and happiness. So this is one slightly strange example of how wisdom and compassion can support each other. Because when I was able to see clearly that the pain wasn't mine alone and that many other people were probably suffering in the same way, it helped me to understand the truth of anatta, that nothing is personal and I'm not in control. And then with this wisdom came a new sense of lightness and openness so that there was almost literally more room in the heart and the mind for compassion to grow. So in this way, wisdom and compassion can become inseparable expressions of our practice. For most of us, though, that's not where we start. Most of us need some practice, some training in the development of these two wings of awakening. The Four Noble Truths offer us the training in wisdom, and the four Brahmaviharas of kindness and compassion, joy and equanimity give us a training of the heart. I want to take some time to focus on compassion now because in my own practice and in many of the students that I work with, it often seems that compassion is the missing piece. So coming back to the basic definition of compassion as the capacity to turn towards dukkha, to meet our own and others' pain with kindness, care, and courage. In the development of the Western insight tradition so far, we've generally put more emphasis on metta, on kindness, than compassion. So sometimes people will ask, well, what's the difference between metta and compassion? So for me, metta is usually a quality of kindness that's a a sort of a generic or generalized friendliness or goodwill. Whereas compassion, on the other hand, is grounded in that same kindness, but it's turned specifically towards pain, stress, distress, suffering. In other words, compassion is what flowers naturally when metta encounters dukkha. So we could think of compassion as being the love child of metta and dukkha coming together. And one of the disadvantages of emphasizing metta is that, at least in my own practice, I've noticed times when I've sort of misapplied metta as a strategy to try and distract myself from pain. An unconscious movement to disconnect from the dukkha by using the metta phrases to distance myself from what hurts, to apply metta as a kind of superficial salve that covers over the festering wound of my distress. So for example, early on in my practice, I would find myself mechanically reciting the metta phrases such as, 
may I be safe, may I be healthy, may I be happy, may I know peace. But if I had looked more carefully, what I was actually saying was, I hate this, get it away from me, why isn't this over yet, just make it stop. And yet the meta phrases were disguising that underlying distress and aversion to the distress. On the other hand, the phrases that we use for compassion aren't so easy to cheat with because they point more directly to suffering and they can give us a powerful antidote to our usual habit of resisting dukkha. And the most common place that we tend to resist dukkha is in relation to ourselves, to our own experience. For most people, self-compassion is the hardest part of this practice. And for most people, it's often the most deeply transformative. So I'd like to share some compassion phrases that have been helpful in my own practice. I've offered these to some of you in the individual meetings. I'm aware of this pain. I care about this pain. May this pain release. May I know peace. So these are phrases that I developed in my own practice as a a four-part process that can be shortened to basically being aware, caring, wishing for release, knowing peace. And the first two phrases can help to show any resistance to being with the pain, whereas the second two phrases remind us that all of this practice is oriented to moving beyond the pain. So the first phrase, I'm aware of this pain, is a kind of test. Is that true? Is there a willingness to acknowledge it? And sometimes the answer might be a giant flashing neon, no, I'm not wanting to be aware of this pain. But even being able to see this is useful, because unless I recognize the resistance, I can't do anything to soften it. And it's true that depending on the intensity of the resistance, if the resistance is super strong, then it might actually be wise to recognize that this isn't the right time to be doing compassion practice. I might need to do something different to soothe the heart and mind and then come back to the compassion practice when I'm feeling more balanced. The second phrase, I care about this pain, is also a kind of test. Again, is that true? Do I care about it? Or do I just want it to go away? And again, if we do meet resistance, we might need to approach this very gently. We might agree to care about this pain for the next 10 seconds, that's all. Then, after 10 seconds, we can deliberately turn our attention to something either neutral or pleasant so that we don't get overwhelmed by the pain. And again, if there's a very clear lack of care about the pain, or perhaps even hostility to it, then we might need to recognize that it's not the right time for the practice. We can literally or metaphorically bow out and just come back to the simplicity of mindfulness of breathing for a while. Or perhaps go out and do walking meditation outside, or even just have a cup of tea. The key thing in this, whatever we choose to do, is to do it with as much consciousness, awareness as possible. We're trying to gently expand our capacity to be with dukkha. So trying to force ourselves out of our comfort zones is a subtle form of violence that's totally counterproductive. So if we find ourselves in that terrain, it's much better to take what I call a strategic withdrawal and move away from the dukkha for a while. This is not cheating, as some people think, nor is it missing a valuable opportunity to be with dukkha because chances are that that dukkha will come back again before too much longer. So there probably will be another opportunity to work with it again when you're feeling a bit more resourced. So the third of the compassion phrases, may this pain release, 
is a reminder that compassion practice is not a form of masochistic suffering for the sake of suffering. And it's true that compassion is sometimes presented as the heart that vibrates in response to another's pain. But this is only one aspect of the practice. It's not just empathy. If all we're doing is fully feeling with another's pain, then this can lead to empathy burnout. But what prevents compassion from leading to overwhelm is that it's oriented to the release of pain wherever possible. So later in the Buddhist tradition, this link between the listening practice that I've been emphasizing and compassion became explicit in the image of Kuan Yin, the archetypal archetypal embodiment of compassion. So Kuan Yin is sometimes referred to as she who hears the cries of the world. And in the Zen tradition, it's said she listens as if she had ears on every cell of her body, which is quite a striking image. So this practice of compassion is about, on the one hand, settling back and receiving responding rather than reacting. But this receptivity is not passive. In fact, some images of Kuan Yin showing her sitting in a position where half of her body is in meditation and the other half is poised, ready to spring into action. So there's this balance between receptivity and responsiveness, between listening to one's inner world and engaging with the outer world. So compassion contains an orientation to the relief of suffering. But as we've all experienced at times, there are life situations where depending on the type of pain we're working with, there might not be anything we can do to end the pain at that point. Perhaps, for example, we're experiencing the pain of a relationship breakup. It might not be realistic or wise to wish to get back together with that partner, but we might acknowledge the possibility of being relieved of the suffering of rejection or longing or self-blame and so on. And just imagining that as a possibility can give us a moment or two of space, of peace. So the fourth compassion phrase, may I know peace, reinforces this possibility of change. And at times we might deliberately imagine ourselves living without pain, stress, distress, suffering. What might it be like to truly know peace? We might visualize that, attuned to that potential peace as vividly as possible allow it fully into our bodies and our hearts and our minds to get a very immediate felt sense of how peace might be experienced. So coming back to all four of these compassion phrases now, I'm aware of this pain. I care about this pain. May this pain release. May I know peace. We might use these four phrases as a way of practicing with Tanasaro Bhikkhu's last question in relation to the Four Noble Truths. What would help? So taking a moment to think back to the dukkha that you'd contacted earlier, is it possible now to meet it with self-compassion? Does that help reduce the suffering of it in any way? Just to see, is it possible to meet that dukkha with a moment of self-compassion? And I do want to acknowledge that for many people, compassion might come quite easily for other people, for other beings, But self-compassion can be a huge challenge. 
And this is partly because it goes against some very deep societal and family and individual conditioning. For example, many religious and spiritual traditions do value putting others before oneself. And this attitude is often particularly strongly reinforced for women who historically have been expected to sacrifice their own well-being for the sake of the family. And also compassion is sometimes associated with weakness. But as I'm sure you all know, if we take it on as a practice, we quickly discover just how much courage it takes to authentically connect with pain. So Christina Feldman again has written very clearly about the challenges of practicing self-compassion. She says, some people carrying long histories of a lack of self-worth or denial find it most difficult to extend compassion towards themselves. Aware of the vastness of suffering in the world, they may feel it is self-indulgent to care for their own aching body their broken heart, or their confused mind. Yet this too is suffering, and genuine compassion makes no distinction between self and other. If we do not know how to embrace our own frailties and imperfections, how do we imagine we could find room in our heart for anyone else? Too many people find themselves directing levels of harshness, demand and judgment inward that they would never dream of directing towards another person knowing the harm that that would incur. They are willing to do this to themselves what they would not do to others. In the pursuit of an idealized compassion many people neglect themselves. But compassion listens to the cries of the world and we are part of that world. The path of compassion does not ask us to abandon ourselves on the altar of an idealized state of perfection. A path of healing makes no distinctions within the sorrow of our own frustrations, disappointments, fears and bitterness. We learn the lessons of patience, acceptance, generosity, and ultimately compassion. So I'd like to highlight that last sentence, that with the sorrow of our own frustrations, disappointments, fears, and bitterness, we learn the lessons of patience, acceptance, generosity, and ultimately compassion. So in this way, it becomes possible to think of dukkha as a gift, which at first might sound counterintuitive, but many of us, consciously or unconsciously, wish that our practice was just about experiencing bliss states as continuously as possible. But if we look back at the times in our practice that were not blissful, usually that's when we learned the most. And that's where our practice deepens. So if we can learn how to relate to suffering in the right way, it offers a powerful opportunity to deepen wisdom and compassion. And through that process, eventually the heart and mind become completely free of all afflictive states. And from there, it becomes increasingly possible to meet the suffering of the world, of our own communities, our own families with the same compassion. Our practice shifts from being self-centered to other-centered, or perhaps more accurately to being non-centered because there's no distinction between self and other. And later on in the Buddhist tradition, this fusion of wisdom and compassion became more explicit in the development of the Bodhisattva ideal. So the Bodhisattva is someone who takes a vow to postpone their own freedom so that they can help others find their way out of suffering too. And whether or not this idea resonates with us personally at this point, we can still connect with the underlying understanding that all the effort that we're making here 
is of benefit not only for ourselves, but for everyone we come into contact with. So in this spirit of helping us to connect with our own deepest aspirations, I'd like to close with some of my favorite lines from the Bodhicaryavatara, Shanti Deva's guide to the Bodhisattva's way of life. It's a whole book, but I'll read just a few lines that convey this aspiration for wisdom and compassion very powerfully. May I be a protector to those without protection, a leader for those who journey, and a boat, a bridge, a passage for those desiring the further shore. May I be the doctor and the medicine, and may I be the nurse for all sick beings in the world until everyone is healed. May the pain of every living creature be completely cleared away. May the pain of every living creature be completely cleared away. May the pain of every living creature be completely cleared away. So thank you for your attention. Let's just sit quietly for a moment. Mm. 